0: We're going through the book of Romans verse by verse. Up to this point, we've covered the first three chapters of Romans, and we've seen how that Paul has um, uh, started off in chapter 1 by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. He then uh, starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes down through chapter 3 and verse 20 and condemns mankind, both Jew and Gentile. He identifies that all of man is born under sin and that there's, uh, there's no righteousness on man's part in any way whatsoever. He changes the uh, changes gears a little bit in uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested unto us. He, uh, he concludes in verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified. The word justified always means declared righteous. Therefore we conclude that a man is declared righteous by faith without or apart from the deeds of the law. Now in chapter 4, he's going to... Uh, um, talk about two people. So he begins off talking, begins with talking about two people, Abraham and David, that are that are very very important, maybe the most important ones to the Jews in uh, in their doctrine in, in their religion. Now, folks realize that the Roman Church is not a Jewish church. Uh, Paul has never been to Rome, by his own uh, testimony. He has uh, not the. Uh, he is not the founder of the church at Rome. We don't know who started the church at Rome to, to begin with. It could be a, a grandfather or grandchild church, I should say. Paul could be the spiritual grandfather of this church. It could be started by somebody that uh, that was acquainted with his ministry. We don't know, but what we do know is that Paul writes to the church from a from a, a Jewish perspective, not just from the standpoint that Paul is a Jew himself and so he's trying to explain his doctrine but from a, uh, a position that, uh, that the church uh, at Rome must be familiar with. Now, the question that I have is, why are they familiar with the Jewish perspective on the gospel of Jesus? See, well, let me make this statement, and maybe it will make it a little bit more clear. Justification by faith is not an issue unless you know about the Jewish law. See, justification by faith might be a new idea, a new concept if you've never heard anything. But it's not going to be something you fight against unless you've been operating a different way. Do you understand my point? And so Paul is making the argument. Now, we don't know why he's making the argument. We don't know if it's because the church at Rome is is filled with Jews and so he's addressing something that's going to be in their midst. Or if they just know what the Jewish controversy is throughout the world. Wherever he has preached this gospel of faith in Jesus, whichever way it is, Paul lays it out so that the, it answers and, and settles the controversy and answers whatever questions might arise. So he starts off in chapter one with Abraham, who is the, the father of the Jewish faith. He's the father of all the Jews. And so he talks about Abraham from a standpoint. And remember, he's, he's connecting this with what he just said. He didn't write in chapter and verses any more than we do. So he's connecting what he just said in verse 28 of chapter 3. Therefore, we conclude that a man is declared righteous by faith apart or without the deeds of the law. So he asks a question just like he did in chapter 3. What good is it to be a Jew? He asks about the question about Abraham. He says, what shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaineth to the flesh is found? What did Abraham find out? What was Abraham's example? You Jews like to stand up and say, well, we're the chosen people. We're the people of God. We have the sign of circumcision. The law was delivered unto us. And so everybody needs to do things our way and the way God gave it to Moses. But what did Abraham find? What was his experience? That's his question. For if Abraham was justified, declared righteous by works, then he would have something to glory about. But not before God that phrase but not before God goes back to what he's already said no flesh can glory before God because he's already spent three almost three chapters condemning mankind start to finish. So he's saying we've already proven that no man can glory before God but if the idea of Judaism is so great. Then we have to go back to Abraham and ask did Abraham gain his righteousness was he declared righteous because of something that he did or in some other means. Well, we know that he wasn't able to stand before God and glory glory before God in anything that he did. And we know that because of the scriptures. Verse 3, for what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God and it, his faith, was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, the word counted is the word reckon. It literally means to accept to be true what is an established fact. Now, that's tough to, to uh, interject or substitute that uh, that definition every time the word reckon or counted is used here so it doesn't matter to me which way you use it but I want you to know what it means it's an accounting term it's to put something in the ledger that is true it's not a doctrine it's not an idea it's not a philosophy it's a fact so it's saying that the scripture tells us that Abraham believed God and it meaning his faith his believing God was counted reckoned unto him for righteousness now folks whether you realize this or not Paul in one sentence just smashes the idea of Judaism because in the Jews mind Abraham is the top of the pile he is the greatest of all the saints he is the greatest of all the people on the earth because he's the one God originally appeared to he's the one God originally talked to he's the one That was the whole reason for the law of Moses being handed down. He's the one that that made uh, the, the Jewish nation, Israel, the chosen people of God. It's all about Abraham. It all wraps up in Abraham. But Paul just said that Abraham, who they think is the greatest, is equal with the lowest Gentile sinner that there is out there. Because none of us, great or small, big or little, pretty or ugly, None of us have anything in and of ourselves to be counted worthy. Abraham did what any man can do without any action on his own. And that's to believe. Abraham believed God and his faith was counted for righteousness. Now, Paul talks about faith versus works. He says, now to him that works... The reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you work for something, then what you get paid is what you're owed. So if Abraham was justified because of something he did, this is is totally apart from anything that God would do because of his goodness or his grace. Abraham earned what he got, but he didn't, did he? But to him that works not, but instead believes on him that justifies, declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So he's saying to the Jews, if you want to try to work your way into heaven, it's not going to work. It's never going to work. Whatever you would get would be what you are owed. And you're not owed anything. But if you believe in the one who declares righteous, the ungodly. Now, folks, I want you to notice some words that are used here. If we go quickly over here, over this, you'll probably miss it. But let me make a couple of statements here to to point out the fact of verse, uh, what is it? Verse 5. But to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Notice that it says that God declares righteous the ungodly. It does not say that God deca- declares godly the ungodly. God can't declare godly the ungodly because the ungodly is the whole group of people, Jews and Gentiles, the whole world that he's just spent three chapters identifying. God cannot declare godly the ungodly he can declare the ungodly righteous. See, ungodliness has something to do with character. It has something to do with nature. God can't declare you godly if you're ungodly. He's talking about the world. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about the sinful world. He says, God cannot declare you godly, but he can declare you righteous. Now, that's not of yourself, but he has that ability Folks, you need to understand something. And and this is true where Abraham is concerned. It's the argument that Paul is making. But it's true for for every area and every aspect of the operation of faith. Faith is not an act. It's an acceptance. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, wait a minute. The Bible says over in James that faith without works is dead. Yeah, but the works he's talking about is the work of acceptance. Here's what Abraham did. Here's what counted as righteousness before God. That Abraham did. Abraham accepted what God said. To be true. Abraham accepted. What God said to be true. It didn't change his nature. Didn't make him a different person. Didn't cause him to be born again. He couldn't be. It did one and only one thing. It put God in a position. Of honoring. What he said he'd do. That's it. It didn't make Abraham a better man. It didn't make Abraham no longer a sinner. It didn't change his behavior. Other than the actions that he took as a result of his acceptance of God's word. We'll get over into verse 20 a little bit later where it says, being strong in faith, he gave glory to God. What is giving glory to God? It's an act of acceptance that God's word is true. You know what faith comes down to? It comes down to the the truthfulness of God. You know where the fight of faith is? The struggle of faith is? Holding fast in spite of circumstances and thoughts and reasons and opinions and so forth. Holding fast and just accepting God's word to be true. That's the fight of faith. That's the fight Abraham fought. So he says that God, here's what we're supposed to do we're supposed to believe on him, on God, that justifies, declares righteous the ungodly. That man's faith is counted or reckoned just like Abraham's was his righteousness. And what if he's not as good a person as Abraham is? What if the other person's not as good a person, is not as good a character, not as good a moral uh, behavior as Abraham? Doesn't matter. Yeah, but but what if he's better? Does he get more righteousness? No. Folks, here's the part that's so tough, and it's even tough for us, and we're not even under the law. We never were under the law of Moses. Here's what's tough. The thing that's tough is that we are so used to earning our way. It's good to have a good work ethic in the world. It's good to know that if you work hard, the idea is you can get ahead. That doesn't work with God. And what happens is we try to take over, carry over our work ethic, our natural earthly work ethic into spiritual things. It doesn't work. There is one and only one reason that you were declared righteous. There is one and only one reason that you were justified, and that is by faith in something that you had nothing to do with. You just simply believed. You just simply believed. Now, let me make this statement. We'll, uh, we'll go over this a couple of times as we go tonight. But justification is, the, as I said, the meaning of the word is to declare righteous. We know of it as redemption. We know it uh, as not only Jesus paying the price for our sin, but also being born again, being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. Generally, that's what justification is. Because it's almost an instantaneous thing. I I say almost. I don't know why I would say almost. In our thinking, in our um, system of time, it is an instantaneous thing. But there are two distinct characteristics. There are two distinct and separate elements that make up justification. I just mentioned what they were. One was Jesus paying the price. Shedding his blood. Becoming guilty so that you wouldn't have to be. But the second is being made a new creature. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but since I've introduced it, let me go ahead and make this statement. You are declared righteous not because you were a son of Adam who fell and lost his inheritance. You are not declared righteous because you're born again. You're declared righteous for one and only one reason. Now, you need to be declared righteous because everybody's ungodly. Whether you lived a good life, whether you did right, whether you did wrong, none of that matters. And I know that we're so used to looking at things and hearing the devil's whisper in their ear about why this won't work for you because of this and that, the other, and so forth. None of that ever matters because you're not declared righteous based on whether you were or were not good. You're not declared righteous based on, you, on the fact that you really wanted to, wanted to do good and tried to do good but just couldn't. You're declared righteous, not even because you're a child of Adam and Jesus died for the sins of mankind. You're declared righteous for one and only one reason, and that is the shed blood of Jesus. You're not even declared righteous. You're not even justified, the first element of justification. You're not even justified knowing that God's going to recreate you, knowing that you're going to be born again. Knowing that someday when we get to heaven and receive our redeemed bodies, we will manifest the righteousness of the flesh that, we, that God is, intends for us to have. None of those things are why we're declared righteous. There's only one reason that we're declared righteous. See, if if that were not the case, if you were declared righteous because you're going to be born again, then that would have something to do with your works. If you were declared righteous because one day when we get to heaven and to have our redeemed bodies, we'll be able to manifest the righteousness in our total being, then that would have something to do with your works, your righteousness. You're declared righteous for one and only one reason, and that is because Jesus shed his blood for sin. And the only reason that you can be righteous is you simply believe God did. It's all on him and not on you. Now, instantaneously... Once you're declared righteous, neither as an old man or a new man, but because of Jesus, then you're born again and made a new creature. That's when the second element, the second half of justification takes place. That's what Paul is preaching. That's what his gospel of Jesus is about. And the Jews can't wrap their heads around it because they're so used to it being about what they do. They're so used to be about resting on the sabbath day and not not picking up too much weight on the sabbath and not walking too many steps and uh not not cooking and not cleaning do's and don'ts and it made it so hard for them to wrap their heads around now we don't have the law of moses that we deal with thank god but we still have this idea this inherent idea that's a part of fallen man that we're supposed to do something to earn our way and that's impossible There is no way to earn. Everything that you were or were not is totally wiped away. And you have one opportunity. And that one opportunity, I don't mean one point in time, but the one opportunity we have here on this earth is to accept what God said Jesus did for you. That's it. That's it. So now he starts talking about David. David's really important to the Jews too. So he says in verse 6 even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth not righteousness or imputeth righteousness without works. He's saying David said the same thing. David tells us the same thing in Psalm 32. He he declares these things that that he's going to, to identify. He said, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, David knows something about this, doesn't he? See, this is the result of when Nathan came to him because of his own sin. The sin of taking Bathsheba and having her husband killed and and the whole deal. You know, you remember the story? You remember how Nathan did it? Nathan the prophet did it? He came before David and he told him a story. He said there was a guy that had a precious little lamb. And there was another guy that had a lot of lambs. And the guy that had a lot of lambs took the one precious lamb of the poor person, the only one that he had, that was raised in his home and cared for like a child. And he took it and he slaughtered it and he gave it to his friends for dinner. And David got upset. He said, this man will have to pay fourfold for this and he should be put to death. And Nathan turns around and says, that man is you. But at the same time that Nathan told him, His sin, announced his sin, he also announced that God had put away his sin. That's what David is referring to. When David turns around and makes things right and repents before God, that's what he's referring to. Blessed is the man, or those whose iniquities are forgiven. That's all you could have in the Old Testament is just forgiven, covered over. And whose sins are covered, hidden away. Now, this is a type of what Jesus is going to do. Under the covenant we have, Jesus doesn't just cover them up. He doesn't just put them away, put them away, meaning hide them away. It means he does away with them. He removes them once and for all. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute. This is the word reckon or count. Blessed is the man who will not impute sin. Now, there's a consequence for sin. David paid the consequence for sin. You know what David's consequence was? It was exactly what he pronounced. He said the rich man in Nathan's story would have to pay fourfold. David lost four children. Nathan said that the sword would never depart from his house, and David lost four children because of the sin. Quite a price, huh? I think given it to do over again, David would have made a different decision, different choice. As so many times we could turn looking back into our own life and say, man, I wish I'd done that differently. I had no idea it cost us that. But even if it does cost us here on the earth, if we're covered in the blood of Jesus, those are done away with in heaven. Thank God for that. So he's just identified two of the great patriarchs of of, uh, uh, Judaism. Abraham believed God and that faith was counted for righteousness. And David was forgiven too, not by works but because God put it away and didn't impute his sin unto him. He counted it taken care of in the ledger. Well, what did David do to earn it? Not a thing. Now he ask a question, verse 9. Paul asks a very important question. He said, now came this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? Now the blessedness he's talking about is the counting of righteousness, the being declared righteous. That's what Nathan did for David. He declared him righteous even though he didn't deserve it. He said, God has put away your sin. Well, how did God put away his sin? He put away that sin through his repentance in Jesus in the work to come. So now Paul asked the question. He said, now, how did this blessedness come? Did it come upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision too? Who is this declared righteous blessing belong to? Just the Jews or the Jews and the Gentiles? For well, we say that David, that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or when he was in uncircumcision? Now let me give you a little history. Abraham becomes the father of Israel in Genesis 15 verse 6. In Genesis 15 verse 6, he stands side by side with God and God says, this is a pre-incarnated appearance of Jesus most probably. And Jesus says, look at the sky. Number the stars. Abraham says, there's no way to number. And Jesus says back to him, so shall your seed be. So shall your seed be. Now, at the point that he says this, it's Genesis 15, verse 6. He is probably 80 to 85 years old, somewhere in that territory. He's been walking with God since he's 75. So he's been walking with the Lord for 5 to 10 years. There have been many things that God has spoken to him to do that Abraham has obeyed. Now, here's an interesting point. When was righteousness imputed at Abraham? The Bible says he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. When, what that's talking about specifically is that he believed when Jesus said to him in Genesis 15, 6, so shall your seed be. That's what he believed God. Now, that wasn't the first thing that he believed about God. That wasn't the first promise that he accepted. But that's the one that the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned unto him for righteousness. Now, let me ask you a question. Why wasn't he counted righteous when God appeared to him in Ur of the Chaldees? Why wasn't it counted righteousness when he obeyed God and left Ur of the Chaldees? Why wasn't it counted as righteousness when he built the altars unto God? Why wasn't it counted righteousness when he went after the five kings and got Lot and his stuff back? God told him to do all those things. He was operating in obedience to God in those things. How come? Because here's the first promise. God specifically makes that's not attached to anything that Abraham does see God said in Genesis chapter 12 when he first appears to him at age 75 he says if you'll obey me if you'll go where I tell you to go I'll make you rich I'll make you a blessing and and, uh, uh, I'll bless you and make you a blessing and so forth those were things that was kind of a trade-off between him and God if you'll do this then I'll do that but in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 there is no trade here's a promise that's not dependent on any action of Abraham whatsoever in this first, uh, first evidence we have of anything like that. It's interesting to note that Abraham didn't have a law to keep. It's also interesting to know and important to realize that the dispensation of God has never been about a relationship with him through the law. Never. Never wasn't then with Abraham, wasn't with Moses and the children of Israel for the thousands of years, and it isn't now. Well, what is the relationship with God based on? It's always been based on one and only one thing, and that's faith in God's promise. Faith in God's promise. The law was designed to show them that they needed a Savior, but not to cause them to substitute believing God's promise for something else, for some action on their own part. That was their mistake, not God's. It's always been about faith. It always will be. It's always been about simply accepting what God said to be true. So it was counted unto Abraham as righteousness when he believed God at age 80 or 85, whatever it was. We don't know exactly. In Genesis 15, verse 6, where God said, so shall your seed be, just like the stars of the sky. So shall your seed be so shall your seed be. He wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17, about 10 years later. Well, I'm sorry, it's not 10 years, it's about 14 to 15 years later. So how is it that the Jews think that it's the sign of circumcision that counts you as righteous before God? See, that was the thing about the Jews. The sign or the seal of circumcision was that that proved both to God and the world that were God's chosen people and were separated from the world and set apart from them in a way that nobody else is on the face of the earth but Abraham was was counted as righteous 14 or 15 years before circumcision was ever given and that's the point Paul's making he's asking the question of the Jews why do you forget those 14 or 15 years you talk about Abraham you talk about Abraham being the father of your of, of of Israel but why don't you recognize that it was counted under righteousness for him because he believed God 14 or 15 years before circumcision ever came along? Pretty good question, don't you think? How do they answer that one? How then was it reckoned, verse 10, when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. He's making the point that we just explained. And he received the seal or the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. In other words, he's saying circumcision was just a sign. It was just an outward sign of the faith that he had already exercised before he was ever circumcised. Circumcision is fulfilled in the... uh, Well, Paul said it himself. He said circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, and not of the flesh. In other words, circumcision was just an act of faith. Circumcision is is a, a, a type or a kind of water baptism today. And look at what the church has done with water baptism. They've made methods and manners of baptism in water the dividing point between salvation, heaven, or hell. Well, the sign of water baptism doesn't mean anything unless your heart's right. And there's a lot of people that get dunked in water day after day after day and it doesn't save them. It's about what you believe in your heart. It is an outward sign, it's a seal. But it has the same effect as the, the natural act of circumcision in the flesh. If there's not a heart belief behind it, it's just a cutting of flesh. It doesn't mean anything before God. Now, here's something else you need to understand. When Paul's talking about uncircumcision versus circumcision, please realize that just like water baptism, circumcision was a divine commandment. So he's not not only saying the law has to be set aside for faith where righteousness is concerned. He's saying the divine commandments have to be set aside where faith and for righteousness is concerned. You can't trust in them either. They were worthwhile. They were profitable for a period, for a specific purpose, for a specific period of time. But that's not what gets you in either. Even though they were commanded of God to, Partake of them. So he said, How then was his circumcised? Was he Verse 10? Let me start over. How was it then reckoned or counted as righteous? When he was in uncircumcision or in when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Well, we know the answer. Genesis 15:6, when he was uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness, of the faith which he had yet. Being uncircumcised. In other words, he believed before he was un, before he was circumcised. And so it was a sign or a seal of this faith that he had while he was uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe. Who is the, the father of a, all them that are circumcised? No, all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed, reckoned unto them also. It all comes down to one thing. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, it comes down to accepting Jesus. And his work is yours. Remember Jesus gave the story of the two men that went to prayer? One was a righteous man, he was a priest. And he looked over at the publican, the tax collector, who was the other guy, and he said, "Lord, I thank you that I'm not like him." But the tax collector beat his breast and said, "Lord, I'm a sinner, be merciful unto me a sinner." Which one did God hear? The one that the Jew considered a sinner. Why did the Jew consider him a sinner? Because the Jew was circumcised. The Jew was a child of Abraham. Everybody else is out. Paul's saying everybody else is in the same boat. Everybody's a sinner, Jew and Gentile alike. So it comes down to one and only one thing, and that is certainly not circumcision. The one thing is faith to be declared righteous. And he received the sign of, circum, of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet or while he was uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all. Please keep that in mind, that he might be the father of all them to believe. Paul's going to expand over in Romans chapter 9. Paul's going to expand on the idea that not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. And some people read that and say, well, the, wow, the Bible's full of contradictions. How are we supposed to explain that? Well, you explain that because... Israel the seed of Abraham are not those that are circumcised in the flesh The seed of Abraham are those that believe like Abraham did in the promises of God so not all those that call themselves Israel or even have the physical sign of circumcision in their flesh are really what God intended when he talked about the seed of Abraham meaning Israel that he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised in other words Abraham is the father of the Gentiles who believe too Though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed, reckoned, or counted unto them too. And the father of circumcision to them, here's the second group these father to. The first is un, the Gentiles who believe, the second are the Jews that believe. And the father of circumcision to them who are not only of the circumcision only, but also who walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham which he had yet being yet uncircumcised. Now I know that's confusing language the way that it's written, but understand what he's saying. He's saying Abraham is the father of all because he believed God and believed in the promises of God. He believed in a promise that included us all, Jews and Gentiles, the Gentiles that believe like he did in the promises of God and the Jews, not the ones that are just circumcised in the flesh, but the ones that are circumcised and believe like he did. Because that's the kind of faith that Abraham had when he was still uncircumcised, before God had given him the commandment of circumcision. Do you understand what he's saying? That's why he went in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, where he says there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's expanding on that. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised. I mean, you are obeying what God told you to do, but that's not what gets you in right standing with God. That's not what causes you to be declared righteous. You're going to have to turn loose of that. Now, please realize this is a total shift of life belief. I can understand how tough it is for the, Gentile, for, the, for the Jews, excuse me, not for the Gentiles, but it's tough for the Jews because they're having to change everything about what they've been taught all their lives. And that's why they came out so violently against Paul and persecuted him so much for preaching this truth. And as I said before, without the law of Judaism... The law of Moses, which says, keep the law or else. There's nothing to fight against faith in the shed blood of Jesus. There's no substitute. There's nothing that's replacing it or being replaced by it. Verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world. Please notice verse 13. This is really important. For the promise to Abraham that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Now, Let me ask you a question. It's saying that in Genesis 15.6 where God said so shall your seed be. He's making a promise to him to be the heir of the world. What does it mean to be the heir of the world? What doesn't it mean? See Abraham's seed failed and they lost their inheritance. Did I, uh, did I say Abraham? Adam's seed failed. And they lost their inheritance. Abraham's seed gained it back through faith, not through works. Adam's seed lost it through their own actions. Abraham's seed does the one thing that any man can do without any work or effort on his own part. And that's belief. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, simply accepting Jesus. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made none effect. He's saying they're diametrically opposed. It's either faith or it's works. It can't be, it's either one or the other. It can't be a combination of the two. Now, I don't think we're in a position where we try to substitute one for the other. But it seems to me that it, there's such a tendency for us to try to add works to our faith. And again, James talks about works, but the works he's talking about are not works of the flesh. He's talking about works of acceptance. He's talking about works of offering sacrifices of praise. He's talking about works that, that show that we really do believe it, so that it's not just a confession. See, one of the things that Paul is addressing here when he's talking about the Jews is what we might call professing Christians without any fruit because they're professing to be the chosen people of God. you got a lot of people nowadays that are professing to have a special place with God, but there's no fruit in their lives. Well, what does that mean? Maybe we should ask a bigger question. Can a person be a Christian and still sin like the world? Well, yeah, for a while. But sooner or later, something's going to have to change. And that something that changes is either going to be the consequence, the natural consequence of their sin, which will cost them dearly, and in many cases will cost them their lives, earthly lives, so that their spirits are saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Or something is going to change in them, To where the conviction of the Holy Spirit changes their desire to produce fruit in their lives. One of those two things has to happen. Are you with me? I guess it comes down, at least in my thinking, it comes down to this. How much is your salvation worth? I think a lot of people don't understand what salvation really costs. And so they have very little, very little appreciation for it. See, the more I see about the price that Jesus paid, the more precious it is to me. The more I find out about the horrors of the punishment that was laid on Jesus that didn't belong to him but belonged to me instead. That makes me want to live a, a godly life. That makes me want to live apart from sin. Doesn't it you? Well, these are things that he's talking about, and we'll talk about more. For if they, verse 14 again, for if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. It's not about the blood of Jesus anymore, and the promise is made of none effect. Folks, you need to realize something. There's a line drawn through eternity that starts with Abraham down through Jesus. There's two men. There's Abraham and there's Jesus. And there's a direct line that links them. And that line continues on past Jesus for all eternity. And all you have to do is get under that line. And all the blessings of Abraham are yours. Your choice whether or not you get in that line. But there's an eternal line. Verse 15 because the law works wrath if they which of the law be heirs then faith is made voice and the promise is made of none effect because the law worketh wrath for there where there is no law there is no transgression. What Paul is saying is you got to have a law to have a broken law. You can't break something that doesn't exist. Now that doesn't mean there isn't sin. You can have sinful activity and sinful behavior but if there's no law there's nothing to break. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace. It's not of the law. It's not of any works. It's simply acceptance of what Jesus has done. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be made sure to all the seed. Now, when he starts off talking about it's by faith, Uh, it is of faith that it might be by grace. What you need to realize that he's talking about here is that. Faith in Jesus produces security. Because if you come to the realization, and, and I don't think it dawns on many of us um, casually. I, for me, at least, it, uh, it it took some time. It took some meditating. It took some, some some real serious consideration of what was being said and to let it sink in. But if we realize that it's just about what Jesus did, And it's not about anything that we did other than accepting the word of God. That brings us security. Maybe we could see it better by looking at the reverse. If we try to add something to what God has already done. Then there's never a point where you feel like you've done enough. And that's what creates the insecurity. So God intended for there to be a security, a a certainty Rather than an insecurity and an uncertainty. And he says it this way. Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace. The work of God. The finished work of Jesus. To the end. That the promise might be sure. To all the seed. Galatians 3. If you be Christ then are you Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. That heirs according to the promise. Is the heirs of the world. As he describes in chapter 4. Of Romans. To the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17 to verse 25 talks about the, um, the path of Abraham's faith. Now, where it says uh, in verse 17, it starts off, you'll notice if you're reading in the King James, the first part is parenth- uh, parenthetical. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. This is talking about the promise that God made. Let's ignore that and read straight through from verse 16 through verse 17. It says, not only to that which is of the law, but to, those, to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, before him whom he believed. Before him whom he believed. See, the parenthesis there is important for us to know what promise he's talking about. I have made thee the father of many nations. But it's talking about Abraham is the father of all of us before him whom He believed. If we'll follow the same path of Abraham, we can get the same results and the same blessings and be the same heirs of the world, promise, receiver, as Abraham was. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Uh, let, me, um, let me make a couple of statements here. We talk a lot about uh, the subject of faith, and so we come over to Romans chapter 4 and talk about Abraham's faith a lot. But I want you to forget all that for a minute. Because let's read this like we're reading it for the first time. Let's read it like it's the letter that Paul's writing. Because the things that we talk about, the principles of faith that we pull apart from these next verses are, uh, are certainly applicable to every area of faith and every operation of, of uh, the principle of faith. But Paul is talking about one specific use of faith. Paul is talking about the faith of Abraham that caused him to be declared righteous and that received the heir or the promise, which was the, the physical heir, Isaac, being born. So let's read it like that. Notice he says, Abraham, who is the father of us all, before him, whom he believed, even God, in this respect, so that he could have the child, he did two things. This is what God does. Who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. Let me read this to you from the literal Greek. God making alive dead ones and calling things not being being. God making alive dead ones. And calling things not being, being. Now I sometimes say this is God's job description. And it's true. But remember Paul is talking something specific. Specifically to the Jews who know about Abraham and his, uh, the history of Abraham. And how he had the son of promise when he was about 100 years old. And Sarah was 90 and so forth. So he's saying he's going to talk about the path of faith. He's going to talk about the fa- the path that not just enables you to be declared righteous like Abraham was, believing the promise of God, but also to receive any impossibility promise or impossible promise that God has made. God causing dead ones to be alive, making alive dead ones, and calling things not being, being. Now, whether you know it or not, those are the two principles of justification by faith. God calls things not being, being. He declares you righteous when you're ungodly. And then. He makes dead ones alive. Those are the two elements of justification by faith. These are the two principles that God always operates in. No matter what thing you're believing in for. He calls things not being, being. He looked into the darkness and said, light be. He didn't look into the darkness and say, boy, it's dark out there. He called something that wasn't is or called it into being everything that ever changes in your life according to a promise of God is something that is not that becomes right how does God do that he makes something dead live then the case of justification or, or the new birth we know what that means That means after he declares us righteous, and he doesn't declare us righteous because we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. He declares us righteous because we accept the shed blood of Jesus as our own. What are the two elements of being born again? We believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and we confess him as our Lord and Savior. What does that produce? The new birth. What two steps take place? God declares us righteous when we believe. And when we confess Jesus as our Lord, we're born again. We're made new creatures in Christ Jesus, made alive in him. Those are the same two principles that work in in any any, uh, act or action that God takes, always. These are the same two things that took place in Abraham and Sarah for them to have a child. God making alive dead ones and calling things not being being. Who against hope believed in hope. Uh, Other translations are a little better on this than the King James. It literally says who against hope kept believing in hope. Who against hope kept believing in hope. God believed. uh, Abraham believed God for what he said he would do. Now how did he do that? What did he have to fight against that? We look at our own situations and we think well yeah but. But our situation is so much different. We've got things that. That, that are really coming against us. Against hope means against reason, against feeling, against opinions of others, against all human possibilities, whatever. We are to keep believing. That's the path of Abraham's faith. You remember Abraham asked God, Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. When God appeared to him when he was 99 years old, God appeared to Abraham. He said, you're going to have a son. And Abraham said, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Shall my my body produce? Shall Sarah's body be able to produce a child at our old age? He asked the question. He understood what the condition of his body and Sarah's body was. He didn't deny anything ever. In fact, we know that he didn't deny it because he asked God the question. How is this possible? Well, humanly, it's not. Humanly, it's not possible. But what did Abraham receive from God instead? Verse 19, Genesis chapter 17, verse 19. Verse 18 is when he says, just let Ishmael live before you. God said, well, I'll take care of Ishmael, but he's not the one. He says in verse 19, Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, he gives a definitive promise. He said, Sarah shall indeed have a child or have a son. Sarah shall indeed have a son. That's what Abraham would not let himself look away from. So shall your seed be. Abraham, Sarah shall indeed have a son. That's the very essence of faith, folks. It reckons as God does that upon God is described here, giving life not to the feeble, not to the dead, but to the dead, to those who cannot be recovered or helped. Or patched up as to become something they were not before, but who are absolutely and hopelessly dead. God makes dead ones live. If you've got a situation in your body that's dead, you're in perfect territory to receive the promise of God. In fact, in my estimation, it's a little harder if if it's not a matter of something already hopeless, but it's like, well, it's just not working as well as it should. Well, God can make that live, too. But God delights in hopeless situations. That God should call the things that are not as being is what faith rejoices in, folks. That's the act or the work of faith that James is talking about. The acceptance of God's word in such reality that it acts and lives and operates as if it's already done. That's what he's talking about. Faith without works is dead. It's a work or an action or a behavior. That is based on the total and complete acceptance of God's word being true. Who against hope kept believing in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Abraham had a lot of trials in his faith, folks. He had days where he woke up and his body looked and seemed just as dead as when God first told him. But there's no reason for us to be surprised at the trials of our faith and the circumstances coming against us. That's the whole point. Against any circumstance, any opinion, any idea, any thought, any reasoning or whatever. That's where we're supposed to keep on hoping. That's where we're supposed to continue to keep believing in the hope that's produced by the word of God. It comes down to acceptance. It's whether or not faith is simply one thing, and that is, is God honest or not? If he said it, can he not do it? That's the question God asked of himself. He said, have I spoken and shall I not make it good? That's real faith. And being not weak in faith, verse 19, he considered not his own body now dead. We talked about that. He knew. This reads differently in different translations. One translation, it says he considered his body dead. In other words, it's talking about Genesis 17, 17, where he asked God the question, how are our bodies going to work? Are you going to make our bodies function reproductively when they've already ceased to function in that way? But the issue is this, being not weak in faith. He didn't let what he saw in his body hold his attention. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. In other words, he kept his eyes on the promise. The American standard says he wavered not. Looking under the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief. He refused to see the condition of his body above the promise of God. God said, Sarah shall indeed have a son. And folks, you need to realize something. He believed this so strongly. He was fully persuaded that what God could pro- had promised, he was able also to reform. He believed this so strong that it carried Sarah along with, her, uh, with him in faith too. It says uh, Sarah, Hebrews chapter 11 says that Sarah, through faith, her faith received strength to conceive seed. Where did she get that faith? She's just a year before been laughing when God's, she heard God say that she was going to have a child. She's laughing and saying, am I going to have a child at my age? Shall my body at this age have pleasure now? I wanted a child all my life, never had one. Now I'm going to have one. She's laughing. You know what God did? God gave him a son and told him to name him Isaac. You know what Isaac means? It means laughter. What does that mean? That means what Abraham and Sarah looked, thought and looked like it was too good to be true was simply the truth of God's promise. Every time she calls her son, laughter, she's reminded of how good God was to her. So what does Abraham do? Abraham in obedience, after having been called father, of, uh, father on high, which is what Abram means, obeyed God when God says, your, now, your name now is Abraham, which means father of a multitude. He's calling himself father of multitude every day. Every time he says his name, Every time somebody says his name to him, he sees the promise of God. Verse 21, And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham thereafter refused to have his faith weakened by any natural thought of himself or Sarah, but set God's promise only before his mind without wavering. And therefore, verse 22... It was imputed unto him for righteousness. What is it that causes the imputation or reckoning unto us for righteousness or reckoning unto any person for righteousness? Believe in God. This is the kind of believing God that declares us righteous. Even though it looks impossible to us, the blood of Jesus covers us no matter what we deserve. Here's how any promise of God comes to reality and fruition in our lives. No matter what the circumstance looks like, no matter what our reasoning is, no matter what thoughts come, no matter what circumstances arise, the promise of God is what we look at and accept to be true. And that faith is what declares us righteous. Folks, you need to realize something. There are things in life, and there will always be things in life, that come simply. The new birth comes simply. Probably the simplest thing that ever comes. You simply accept what you're, you hear preached about Jesus. You choose to believe it in your heart no matter what you feel. You choose to believe it in your heart and you make the confession that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you get saved. That's probably the easiest that faith will ever produce in your life. Probably. There's certainly anything easier than that. But the rest of it is trial by faith or the trial of your faith. That glorifies God too. Remember how Peter said the trying of your faith is more precious than gold? Have any of you ever found that out physically? What I mean by that is anytime you go through a trial by faith, does your body just jump up and down and say, man, I love this? Well, then how is it more precious than gold spiritually? Why? Why? Because the longer you hold fast in faith, the more and more and more it honors God and enables him to make good on his promise. We've got the idea, and this is totally natural thinking. The stronger our faith is, the quicker results we get. Where do we get that? See, if that were true, then that would simply mean that our work of strengthening ourselves in faith and developing our knowledge of the word and choosing to believe and so forth would be the determining factor in the promises of God being realized. Is that always true? Wouldn't that be a works thing? Can you imagine if if, if works was involved in anything related to getting into heaven? Can you imagine what heaven would be? It'd be like a preacher's meeting. Everybody bragging on what they've done. Well, how is it different being saved by faith or declared righteous by faith? I mean, those as interchangeable terms. How is that any difference than being healed by faith? How is that any difference being blessed financially by faith? How is that any difference by receiving anything else in faith? If it's my faith... Then, won't I have something to brag about in heaven? Won't heaven become the preacher's meeting? Folks, remember faith is just simply accepting God's promise to be true. Accepting God's promise to be true. That's all faith ever will be. It's accepting God's promise to be true. Yeah, but what if it looks like it's not? It's still accepting God's promise to be true. Yeah, but what if the doctor says things are getting worse? It's still accepting God's promise to be true. Therefore, it was imputed to him, reckoned unto him for righteousness. Verse 23 verse 25, Paul wraps it up and brings it back to us. It says, now this was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now, again, he's talking specifically about salvation. But remember, he's writing to people that are already saved. So he's got to be talking about the principle of faith. See, they've already accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior because that's who the letter is written to, to the saints. So he's telling how salvation comes, how faith for salvation comes, but there's a greater meaning here, and the greater principle is this principle of faith that caused you to come into the family of God it's the same principle of faith that it causes you to become an heir of the world or a recipient of all of the promises of blessings of Abraham. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed or reckoned or counted if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. The um, This word for means the channel through. Raising again for our justification. The word for is a, a It's a preposition that can be translated any number of ways. It could be through. It could be by. It could be uh, in. There's any number of ways that it could be translated. But it's talking about a specific work. And again, it goes back to the two elements, the two parts, the two halves of justification. God delivered Jesus up for our sins to pay the price. But he raised him up for our justification. Here's the meaning behind this. And that is, if Jesus just went to the cross, died on the cross declared it is finished and paid the price for mankind, we would be able to be declared righteous. But then what would we have? Where would be our standing with God? What condition would we be in? On the earth declared righteous, but still under sin, totally helpless, unable to do the good that our heart would, would want to do. Desires to do. What standing, what position, what place would we be in with God? None. None whatsoever. But he was raised again for our justification. The implication is that the channel of him being raised from the dead. Was related to the justification. Meaning the, the ability for us to be born again. Our justification is not only being declared righteous, but also being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. Not the old man cleaned up, but a new man, a new species of being. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. One translation says a new species of being. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it didn't have to be for him. God could have just done something for him and that would have been it. But the Bible says he was raised again for our justification. God didn't hold back one bit. He paid. Jesus paid every bit of the price for sin, so that you, through faith in His shed blood, could be declared righteous by faith—just simply acceptance of the truth of God's word. But He was raised again when you were justified. In other words, there seems to be a moment in time, a second, a specific second in eternity, where the price was paid to enable God to make you a new species of being. And before that second, it wasn't possible. But at that second, God raised Jesus from the dead and raised you with him. Why? Because you've been declared righteous by his shed blood, who delivered him up for us all and raised him again for our, or literally, when we were justified. Folks, I hope this gives you a greater appreciation of what belongs to you. I hope it gives you a greater appreciation of what Jesus did that has nothing to do with you and takes away any guilt, any sense of shame, any sense of wrongdoing on our parts, no matter how much wrong we've done. Because we're not declared righteous because of what we've done or what we haven't done. We're declared righteous because of Jesus. And only that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that we have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. We've been declared righteous. And then thank God we were born again. And because we're in him, Lord, not because of our works or anything that we have done or ever will do. We thank you that because we are in him, we can approach your throne knowing that there's no sense of guilt or condemnation on us or toward us in any way whatsoever. Father, show us. How we can make the same choices, the same determined choices that Abraham did, facing the same impossible type situations as he, and keep our eyes on your promise. Father, we declare, we accept your word to be true. And because we believe that it is, because we accept it to be true, we choose not to look at anything else, no circumstance, no reasoning, no thoughts, no opinions, no thing Other than your word. Thank you Father. For honoring your word on our behalf. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.